0: There are only three answers that the Lord gives you to prayers yes, no, and not yet. And now for New Mark, part four. Good evening, everybody. Let's just open it up with a word of prayer. Lord, we come to you in prayer today and We just thank you. We thank you for bringing us here this night safely. It's cold outside, so cold that there may have been black ice on the road, and yet you still delivered everybody here in one piece. Lord, I thank you because no day is guaranteed. Tomorrow is not promised, and if we live every day as though every tomorrow was promised, one day we'd be telling ourselves a lie. Lord, I just pray that today, your spirit will fill this place. That regardless of what is said or what is heard, Lord God, that there will be a changing of hearts and a changing of ways. I pray that everybody shall walk closer to you and not further from you, hand in hand, arm in arm, Lord God. I just pray that you get the glory out of our lives. And I pray that we shall truly trust you. In the name of Jesus, And in the spirit of truth, we pray, amen. Amen, amen, amen. So today I'm actually finishing a series. It's been a series about exegeting Mark 1, or just explaining the scripture as the scripture was likely meant when it was written. And today we're going to be dealing with the most verses from 29 all the way up to 45. But I did just want to give a little disclaimer before I jumped into it. And that was a little bit of an apology. In my past sermons, there have been some sources that I had been using that I simply didn't cite. And I could give the big old excuse it was because I didn't bold the name and I was only reading the bolded words. That was actually the case. Regardless, this occurred at least once in every one of my sermons. So I just wanted to remedy that here. The biggest unmentioned source was actually Mike Winger. He had a series on YouTube simply titled New Mark. There were seven parts, each like 50 minutes. And that was a heavy influence that you could see across every one of my sermons. But because of just how significant the influence was, I wasn't just using mere quotes. There were also paraphrases. And as a matter of fact, I didn't have his name written like anywhere. And so each sermon, I would just end it. And then I'd be walking back and be thinking, I forgot to say it again. Other than that, there was a Bible study group that I joined around the time that I began this series, simply titled Why Should I Believe Up at Georgia Tech. Interestingly enough, the time that I joined, the head of it was doing a series about the early life of Jesus. And so it coincided with what I was preaching. And so I went from those notes as well, though I did not quote it, as I was just taking parts from the notes from the meeting. And lastly, though minor, I had simply not included Paul Wash's name after I paraphrased him in my second sermon. Regardless, apologies. Moving on. So, let's jump right into scripture. Mark 1, verses 29 through 34 read, After Jesus left the synagogue with James and John, they went to Simon and Andrew's home. Now, Simon's mother-in-law was sick, in bed with a high fever. They told Jesus about her right away. So he went to her bedside, took her by the hand, and helped her to sit up. Then the fever left her, and she prepared a meal for them. That evening, after sunset, many sick and demon-possessed people were brought to Jesus. The whole town gathered at the door to watch. So Jesus healed many people who were sick with various diseases, and he cast out many demons. But because the demons knew who he was, he did not allow them to speak. Now this first passage has a lot for us to unpack. I mean, firstly, we see that they went to Simon's mother's in-law's house. And this may seem like a really minor detail. One could question why I bring it up. Well, as usual, across every sermon, you can just about see me kind of debating with a commonly believed point in whatever doctrine. In this instance, is Catholicism and leaders not being allowed to have wives? Now, if you don't know, Simon Peter or Cephas is oftentimes considered to be the first pope in Catholicism. Yet for him to have a wife in the Bible would directly contrast with this idea that high leaders in the Catholic Church aren't allowed to marry. You see, in Scripture, just going off of Scripture and what Jesus said, there's no problem there. But there's usually two extremes that we see in the church, and that's either being completely against marriage if you're in leadership, fully focused on serving God alone, or that being that marriage is truly beautiful and you are at your best when you are serving God with a partner. I'm not here to necessarily argue for either point, but just to show that the first one simply ain't biblical. Continuing on, I want to mention what Catholic.com states. It's a clearly Catholic source, so I'll, I'll use their words. They refuted it by making the assumption that Simon Peter's wife was dead. And because she was dead, she was also dead before he started to go along the ministry with Jesus, that he wasn't yet the Pope yet. He wasn't yet changed by Christ, and thus it was invalidated. Now I'm going to ask a rhetorical question. Did you see anywhere in the scripture that I read that Simon Peter's wife was dead? The issue with the assumption is that it's an appeal to mystery or an appeal to silence. It was not stated that she was alive, so we can say she was dead. The scripture is not clear about it either way, and the passage isn't even about his wife per se. It's about his wife's mother, who was sick. The only real reason that she would have been mentioned would have been if she herself was sick or was significantly helping out in that instance. In other words, it's a logical fallacy. Some will try and make appeals to translations that it was rather sisters in Christ as opposed to wife. Most translations say wife. The only translation that you're likely to find that'll say sister in Christ would be one that was translated from the Latin and primarily used by the Catholic Church. They have interest to make it say that. Continuing on, just to quote an individual named Clement from around 200 AD, and it's the last thing that I'll say on this topic. He stated, Have we not a right to take about with us a wife that is a sister like the other apostles but the latter in accordance with their particular ministry devoted themselves to preaching without any distraction and took their wives with them not as women with whom they had marriage relations but as sisters that they might be fellow ministers in dealing with housewives now clement was also plausibly adding stuff but he was a lot closer to the event and we can reasonably assume that from this initial occurrence in scripture Over time, things were just added along, and it developed into this doctrine that people who are leaders in the church shouldn't have wives. Regardless, even Clement back then acknowledged that Peter did indeed have a wife. Continuing on, in verse 31, we see something that's pretty straightforward and to the point. It's Jesus performing a miracle. We see him healing her, simply raising her up, and her fever was gone. He didn't do any theatric. He didn't put on a show, and then the healing came. He just straight up did it. It was a showing of his authority and the clarity of it. In verse 32, we see a hyperbole. It wasn't actually the whole town, but it was a lot of people. And additionally, we see something else that's really interesting. And that's that we see a separation in the use of language between sick folk and demon-possessed. The reason why this is interesting is because many times in the church, we'll see them being kind of bunched together, right? If somebody's sick, it's of the devil. When people are demon-possessed, they're sick, as though it's one and one and the same. But in Scripture, there's a clear contrast. So not everybody who is ill, not everybody who is sick, is demon-possessed. Continuing on, we see in verse 34 that though Jesus healed many people, he didn't heal everybody. That's not necessarily something I'm going to harp on too much, but you can let that sit with you. Though Jesus healed many people, he did not heal everybody. At least the scriptures don't say. Maybe he did, but we can't make an appeal to silence. All right. Continuing on, we see that Jesus had silenced the demon. And one could ask the question, why would Jesus silence a demon? Is it because the demon would have deceived folk? Is it because the demon would have shouted loud and wide about who Jesus was? Most likely. But why is this significant? You know, demons in the church, just in a broad spectrum of Christianity, have been said to be like quite literally anything, you know, whether a demon be a fallen angel, whether a demon be Nephilim, whether a demon be some concept, poverty, sickness, just hurt, pain and grief. Demons have been said to be like anything. But what's the actual origin of the word? Now I'm going to go to JJ Given here. And he states that the history of the name demons is somewhat curious. And it follows daemon, which means skillful, and so implied superior knowledge, or from deo, I dispense, as if able to distribute destinies, and so superior in power, was at first nearly synonymous with theos, or god, lowercase g by the way, except that the latter signified a particular god or person, while the former meant a deity with respect to power, then an inferior deity, or semi-god. An agency intermediate between God and man, in plural. In other words, you know, some people, they serve false gods, whether it's a god of money or a god of lust. And then if you read fantasy novels, we've all seen it. Characters are so strong that they're seen as divinities or deities. It's not that people worship them, but that they can do such supernatural feats that you might as well call them or consider them a god. That's the distinction that we see here, but both being referenced towards the same word, demons. Departed spirits of the good, and so tutelaries, deities, or laries. Next, any departed spirits or manes. In the New Testament, the term signifies not the spirits of the departed, but those of evil spirits or fallen angels, who kept not their first estate, who are distinguished from the elect angels, and of whom we read that God spared not the angels that sinned. They are subject to Satan, but like him, they can only act by permission of God. In their operations, they can neither contravene the laws of nature, nor interfere with human freedom and responsibility. Powerful for evil, as they undoubtedly are, leading men captive or working on the children of disobedience, they, like their head, have only so much power over man as men themselves consent to or concede them. In other words, just to harp on a point directly related to scripture, demons had deeper knowledge, and Jesus was not going for the dissemination of it. And the reason would have been pretty simple. The natural consequence of a demon revealing who Jesus was probably would have been the people asking, Jesus, is this true? If a demon revealed that Jesus was the Christ, the Messiah, the prophesied one that people were waiting on, of course, Jesus isn't going to deny that. But if Jesus doesn't deny being the Messiah and he's moving in power, then the worldly power is going to come after him. The Pharisees going to be curious about who this Jesus of Nazareth fellow is. And if the Pharisees get curious about who this Jesus of Nazareth fellow is and they come and ask him, Jesus, are you the Messiah? And he still doesn't deny it. Then the Pharisees are going to kill Jesus. In other words, by Jesus controlling the flow of information, he was controlling the day on which he died. Continuing on, on to verses thirty five to thirty nine. The next passage. Before the daybreak, the next morning, Jesus got up and went out to an isolated place to pray. Later, Simon and the others went out to find him. When they found him, they said, everyone is looking for you. But Jesus replied, we must go on to other towns as well, and I will preach to them too. That is why I came. So he traveled throughout the region of Galilee, preaching in the synagogues and casting out demons. Firstly, we have verse 35 we see a prioritization of prayer. Jesus being a representation here, even though he's living a busy life, still took time out of his life to go alone to his place of solitude and pray. Hmm. To prioritize prayer, to prioritize seeking the Lord, even in the midst of our busy lives is a lesson that can be extracted there. And in verse 37, I wanna quote J.A. Picton. It's a little bit of a long passage, but it would depict why people would even be seeking Jesus, why everybody was wondering where he was. Let's read it. While rejoicing in divine solitude, the loneliness in which he left the suffering, toiling people was indescribably painful to them. A man born blind does not realize his deprivation, but if there is given him a brief vision of daylight, how unutterable his sense of loss when it fades away again. So these people felt themselves deprived of the fresh interest and hopes with which they had been inspired when they lost the society and communion of Jesus. But the question was asked by all lips, where is he? And most true is it today, by man's opinions, what they may. There is no more universal experience of humankind, whether gentle or simple, scientific or ignorant, barbarian or bond or free, than the hunger for that of life, which is in Christ Jesus. That's why everybody was wondering, where is Jesus? And in the process of Christ seeking God in prayer, he still didn't allow for that to hinder his purpose. Yeah, he was in the midst of prayer. He was in the midst of worshiping God, but he's still up and left because he had something that he had to take care of. He couples his prayer with his purpose. He walks and he works in the will of God. And then additionally, even all of these people, you know, when they hear from Jesus, he still goes out and evangelizes. He shared the word in this place and he shared the word in that place. He shared the word everywhere that he went. It was a cycle that was repeating. He was proclaiming, he was preaching, and he was performing miracles, not just in one place, but everywhere, because Jesus was for evangelism. Continuing on to the final passage of Mark 1 it's verses 40 to 45, and it reads, A man with leprosy came and knelt in front of Jesus, begging to be healed. If you are willing, you can heal me and make me clean, he said. Moved with compassion, Jesus reached out and touched him. I am willing, he said. Be healed. Instantly, the leprosy disappeared, and the man was healed. Then Jesus sent him on his way with a stern warning. Don't tell anyone about this. Instead, go to the priest and let him examine you. Take along the offering required in the law of Moses for those who have been healed of leprosy. This will be a public testimony that you have been cleansed. But the man went and spread the word, proclaiming to everyone what had happened. As a result, large crowds soon surrounded Jesus, and he couldn't publicly enter a town anywhere. He had to stay out in the secluded places, but people from everywhere kept coming to him. Mm. In verse 40, the first thing that we see is the leper's faith. The first thing that's emphasized isn't that Jesus healed a leper, and here's how. It was that the leper had sought Jesus in faith for healing. And additionally, it wasn't just that the leper sought Jesus in faith. It was that the leper said, let your will be done, if you are willing. He put the Lord's will before his own, and yet the Lord still did it for him. Sometimes in churches, you know, we hear individuals say not to pray prayers, Lord, let your will be done, because it could be like hindering your blessing or something like that. This is a very successful instance of a Lord let your will be done prayer. We see clearly in Scripture. And I've been doing a Bible plan these last few days. It's a Christmas related Bible plan. But there was something that stuck with me regardless. And that was that there are only three answers that the Lord gives you to prayers. Yes, no, and not yet. May the Lord's will be done. And then additionally, Jesus was doing the opposite of cultural expectation. You see, individuals that had leprosy back then were viewed as incredibly unclean. Of course, it was a fatal, contagious illness that was passed down by blood. And the thing about leprosy, individuals were like cast out of society, you know, banished from their families to live in societies with fellow lepers. And not only was that the case, it was seen that the more holy an individual was, the less they associated with lepers. And yet, even though that was the case for the society, the Messiah came, the the holiest of them all, the prophesied one walking among them. And he was still willing to reach out to the leper. He was still willing to be in contact with the leper, seen as the lowest of society. And yet Jesus was still more than willing to not only touch the leper, but make the leper clean too. Mm. It's a parallel to the cross where Christ took all of our sin, all of our shame, all of our guilt. When no matter how unclean we were, he washed it away. Mm. And all that we're called to do is have faith in him like the leper did. Then and only then can we be made clean like he was too. And additionally, passing on, you may wonder, why was Jesus so secretive? You know, not only is he silencing demons, why was he silencing this leper? Well, not silencing him, but, you know, telling him not to share the information. Why would Jesus do that? You know, it's a great miracle. Wouldn't you want to hear it spread far and wide? Then maybe more people will seek out Jesus. Problem is, too many people seek out Jesus. We get to see the natural consequence to this action, and the result is simply unimaginable crowds. You can picture this. You have an individual, stage four, terminal cancer, on their dying breaths, even. And perhaps you've seen them in that state, and a hospital bed hooked up to tubes cannot live on their own. And then you can not only hear, you then see them later. And they're up and walking. And they're good. They're strong. And you don't even have to ask them, hey man, what happened to you? They tell you straight up <laughs> this man, he touched me. And when he touched me, I was healed. I was good. No more cancer, man. I'm strong. At the very least, that's going to rouse curiosity in you. And see, if you got a little sickness yourself, you may seek that person out. And then if you have some little cancer yourself, or you a stage four cancer patient yourself? You gonna do everything that you can in your power to reach that person. And that's just putting it in perspective. Unimaginable crowd. It's not to say that Jesus wouldn't have still healed those individuals, wouldn't have ended up in the places where the sick were. But everybody going to be a little curious to see the man who healed the leper. Everybody could see it. And not only could everybody see it, the leper was proclaiming it himself. I told myself before I started to preach that as soon as I finished saying what I had to say, I was going to stop. The last few sermons of this series, I was always trying to meet this 23 minute mark. And even if I only had like 18 minutes of sermon, I was going to fill the rest of the time. This is it. (laughs) This is it. This is Mark one. And I don't even necessarily have a title to this fourth sermon, but I'm going to just title it New Mark part four. Every part of this series has been named a different title, yet it's all a collective series. You know, it began with repent and be baptized about John the Baptist who paved the way for Christ Jesus and how Jesus fulfilled baptism, truly cleaning our sin. And then repent and believe the two sides of faith. And the third one, I think it was simply titled follow Jesus. And this is New Mark. I thank you all for being out here. I'm a new driver. And I knew there may have been ice on the road. So I was Googling, how do you drive on ice? And the top suggested tip was don't drive if you don't have to. So I appreciate you all coming out here, even though you didn't have to. May the Lord bless you. You are listening to Brothersoftheword.com. This was part four of the series titled New Mark by George Bronner. This message is number 4116. That's 4116. To listen to thousands of free messages or to send this message number 4116 to a friend, go to Brothersoftheword.com. If this message has been a blessing to you and you would like to help support this ministry, go to IWantToGive.com. That's iWantTogive.com. Listen to brothers of the Word.com often because, brother, you need word. the word.